You're listening to Isaiah, a sermon series from Coram Deo Church in Omaha, Nebraska. For more resources, visit cdomaha.com. Ah, you destroyer, who yourself have not been destroyed, you traitor whom none has betrayed. When you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed. And when you have finished betraying, they will betray you. O Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. At the tumultuous noise, peoples flee. When you lift yourself up, nations are scattered, and your spoil is gathered as the caterpillar gathers. As locusts sleep, it is leapt upon. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness, and he will be the stability of your times, abundance of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. Behold, their heroes cry in the streets. The envoys of peace weep bitterly. The highways lay waste, the traveler ceases. Covenants are broken, cities are despised. There is no regard for man. The land mourns and languishes. Lebanon is confounded and withers away. Sharon is like a desert, and Bashan and Carmel shake off their leaves. Now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. You conceive chaff. You give birth to stubble. Your breath is a fire that will consume you. And the peoples will be as if burned to lime, like thorns cut down that are burned in the fire. Hear, you who are far off, what I have done. And you who are near, acknowledge my might. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, who despises the gain of oppression, who shakes his hands lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking on evil. He will dwell on the heights. His place of defense will be the fortresses of rocks. His bread will be given him. His water will be sure. Your eyes will behold the king and his beauty. They will see a land that stretches afar. Your heart will muse on the terror. Where is he who counted? Where is he who weighed the tribute? Where is he who counted the towers? You will see no more the insolent people, the people of an obscure speech that you cannot comprehend, stammering in a tongue that you cannot understand. Behold, Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent, whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. But there the Lord in majesty will be for us, a place of broad rivers and streams where no galley with oars can go nor majestic ship can pass. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. Your cords hang loose. 
They cannot hold the mast firm in its place or keep the sail spread out. Then prey and spoil and abundance will be divided. Even the lame will take the prey, and no inhabitant will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. Happy Fourth of July weekend. Thank you for coming and being here. Uh, If you don't know me, my name is Nick Clatterbuck. I'm one of the deacons here, and I get the privilege of preaching to you from Isaiah 33. So if you have an app or a Bible, open it up. We'll spend a lot of time in the text. We'll start with a quote, though. Adversity doesn't build character. It reveals it. This is a quote from American author James Lane Allen, and it stood the test of time because it rings so true. Hard times and difficult situations have a way of showing us what we're truly made of what type of people we are. And the same can be true about our faith. Hard times and difficult situations tend to show what we truly hope in, what we believe in, and how it affects us as people. I mean, we can be generous and trust God to provide, but what happens when our own bank accounts start to dwindle, when we start worrying about how to provide for ourselves? Can we still be generous and trust God in those circumstances? We can be kind and loving to the people around us, but what happens when a spouse or a friend betrays us or hurts us or disappoints us? Will we still return good for evil, or will we become vindictive, self-protective? We can trust that God is good in all circumstances, but what happens when we face the hard realities that Mike was just praying about? Death, hurt, miscarriage, destruction. Can we still have a firm faith in God during those times? If we're honest with ourselves, we look at our lives, we see that often in hard times when life presses in, our faith is not what we want it to be. We start distrusting and disobeying God more than we should and more than we want to. The question that we need to grapple with, the thing that we need help with is, how do we get a faith that will stand up in hard times? How can we trust and obey God even in the most difficult of circumstances? Luckily, we have Isaiah 33 to help us with just that. Isaiah 33 was written to the people of Judah at a time when they were experiencing great hardship, great trial, and buckling under the circumstances. Their faith was proving to be far less than they they desired it to be. Now, just so we make sure we're all on the same page, I'm going to talk about Judah a lot in this sermon. And Judah is a subset of the people of God. At this time in history, the kingdom of Israel is actually divided. There's the northern kingdom of Israel, and there's this smaller tribe of Judah, the people of King David who live in Jerusalem. That's uh, who Isaiah is written to, uh, and that's the people that we're going to look at here in Isaiah 33. So here's what's happening to the people of Judah as our chapter opens. The nation of Assyria is coming down, descending on them from the north. They have them surrounded. And the Assyrians are some seriously bad dudes. They have conquered kingdom after kingdom, wiping out everyone in their path. They've actually carted off the northern kingdom of Israel already, and now they're surrounding Judah. And Judah is rightfully afraid. But in the midst of that, God makes them a promise. He says, I'm going to take care of this Assyrian threat for you, and you're not going to have to lift a sword. You're not going to have to lift a finger. Two things I need you to do. One, don't go down to Egypt for help. And two, be still and trust that I am God and that I will save you. Basically, don't go try to save yourself. So naturally, the first thing Judah does is they run directly to Egypt in contravention of God's word to seek military help. 
When that plan A fails then, they go to plan B, which is, hey, maybe we can just buy these guys off. So King Hezekiah of Judah sends the king of Assyria saying, hey, name your price. What's it going to take for you guys to go away? Assyria gives them a price. Judah starts collecting their treasure. They actually strip the gold and the silver off the doors of the house of the Lord and send it off to the Assyrians in the hopes that they will go away. You can probably guess how that turns out. Assyria says, hey, thanks for all this treasure. It's going to be so much easier just to store this away than pick it out of the rubble of your broken city. We are still going to come and destroy you. So Judah is just in a terrible, terrible spot. They have no help from the Egyptians. All their money is gone. They got no way to buy their freedom. And death is still at their doorstep. But worse than that, even sadder than that, they've really given away, sold down the river, the one thing that gave them any power or purpose or special place in the world. And that thing was their faithful relationship with God. See, they're meant to be the people of God who lived in trust and obedience and close relationship with Him. And they've severed that. They've broken that off. They are functionally a godless people. They, They have faith in name only. It has no real effect on who they trust or who they go to in times of trouble. And now they are facing down the consequences of that self reliance and that self trust. So, question for Jude is, well, what do you do? Plan A has failed, plan B has failed. We need some last ditch, last hope, Hail Mary effort. And so what they do is they actually turn back to God. They turn back to God and ask him to save them. Look at verse 2 of chapter 33. O Lord, be gracious to us, we wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. At the tumultuous noise, peoples flee. When you lift yourself up, nations are scattered, and your spoil is gathered as the caterpillar gathers. As locusts leap, it is leapt upon. This is a really good prayer. Lord, come and save us. We know, we have confidence that when you do, all these nations will be scattered. We're waiting for you. It's a good prayer, but it's one that it's really easy to be cynical about, right? Hey, Judah, what morning was it that you really wanted God to come save you? Was it the morning you ran off to Egypt in disobedience to him? Or was it the morning when you took all the gold out of his temple and gave it to his enemies? Sure, you're turning back to God now, but you're out of options. What are you going to do? It's easy to be cynical until we realize how many of our own prayers come from the same place, right? Man, God, I, I have distrusted you. I've blown it. Look at the mess I'm in. Please come and save me. So there's real drama here. There's drama. What is God going to do with this late coming repentance from a people whose faith has failed? Will he save them? Will he listen to them? Will he provide for them? Will he do something for them to actually allow them to live as his faithful people? The answer we get from Isaiah 33, both for Judah and for us, is a resounding yes. Yes, I will save you, I will provide for you, I will give you something that will actually give you a faith that can withstand difficult circumstances. So that's what we're going to look at in Isaiah 33. Three things in particular. One, what does God give to a people whose faith has failed? Two, why does this matter? And three, what are we to do in response? So first, what does God give to a people whose faith has failed? Isaiah 33 shows us two things. One, a present salvation, and two, a promise of abundant future blessing. Let's first look at this present salvation. Going to verse 1. Ah, you destroyer who yourself have not been destroyed, you traitor whom none has betrayed. 
When you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed. And when you have finished betraying, they will betray you. Here God is talking to the nation of Assyria, these people who have double-crossed everyone in their path, wiped out everybody, and seemingly got away with it. God says, no, I see you. I know what you've done. Your judgment is coming, and it's coming soon. But that judgment's not going to be delivered until God turns back to the people of Judah and makes them come to grips with the consequences of them turning away from him. Look at verse 7. He says, Behold, their heroes cry in the streets. The envoys of peace weep bitterly. These are Judah's mighty military men, their government ambassadors, the people that they were trusting to save them from the Assyrians. And these guys are both broken down and weeping in the streets because they got nothing left. They've tried and they've failed. Verse 8, the highways lie waste, the traveler ceases. Covenants are broken, cities are despised. There is no regard for man. The societal fabric of Judah is coming apart. There's no more commerce, there's no more people in the streets. People are breaking promises right and left. There's no regard for the dignity of your fellow man. And not only that, but nature itself seems to be falling apart. Verse 9, the land mourns and languishes. Lebanon is confounded and withers away. Sharon is like a desert, and Bashan and Carmel shake off their leaves. This is just a complete and utter picture of brokenness. And this is Isaiah showing the people, this is what your self-reliance has got you. You've disregarded the promises of God, and, and, and now this is what you're facing. Things could not get any worse. But in this moment, in this very moment, God chooses to act. Verse 10, Now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. You conceive chaff, you give birth to stubble. Your breath is a fire that will consume you. And the peoples will be as if burned to lime, like thorns cut down that are burned in the fire. Now is the time he's going to deliver his judgment on the Assyrians and save his people of Judah. We find out a few chapters later that what God does, he sends an angel into the camp of the Assyrians, kills 185,000 of them, and scatters the rest of their army. It's an amazing salvation that comes in the middle of the night without Judah having to do a thing. It's an amazing salvation. And if we take a moment and look at what God does here, we get to see a few things about his grace and how it works. First of all, did you notice that there really isn't much difference between Judah and the people of Assyria at the beginning of the chapter? I mean, sure, the Assyrians have a much better win-loss record at this point, but when it comes to what they're trusting in, it's, it's virtually the same. They're looking to military strength, their own wealth, land. They're trusting in the same things. The only real difference is that Judah, the people of God, turn back to God in faith and repentance. Now, they don't have a track record of obedience to prove to God that they really mean it this time. They've done nothing really good to earn his favor. All they have is an admission that we've blown it, and Lord, we're looking to you for salvation. And the amazing thing is is that God responds to that. That's amazing. This is confirmation that God is not a God who gives out his grace on the basis of your good works. If you've blown it, if your faith has failed just like Judah, his forgiveness is there. He responds to humility and repentance. If there's any question, there's verse 10, right? Now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. In the moment of your greatest failure is when I want to show you the most grace. There are people in here right now who think that they have blown it so badly that they are now beyond the grace of God. 
Sure, you are his son or daughter, but you've screwed it up and now my help is over for you. Not true, not true. The moment of your greatest failure is when God wants to extend his greatest grace. Turn back to him in faith and repentance. Ask him to save and he's ready to do it. That's the type of God he is. The first thing that he does for a people whose faith has failed is he gives them a present salvation. Now, if you're the people of Judah, you probably think, all right, story can end here, right? Assyria is gone. You've kicked them out. This is what we were worried about in the first place. This is why we sinned. This is why we asked for your help. The Assyrians are gone. But God's not done there. He's just getting started. What God wants to do, he wants to give them something that will actually allow them to live as his faithful people going forward. He wants to give them a promise of abundant future blessing, a promise that's going to potentially make all the difference for them. Look at verse 13. He says, Hear, you who are far off, what I have done, and you who are near, acknowledge my might. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? It's got to be the question on Judah's mind, right? Sure, Assyria is gone, but they're fundamentally the same people who are disobeying and distrusting God just days before. All right, if Assyria can't dwell with this everlasting burning, how are we going to? We're not much better than them. God has just saved us. Isaiah goes on to describe the type of people who will actually get to live with God. He says, It is he who walks righteously and speaks uprightly who despises the gain of oppressions, who shakes his hands lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking on evil. He will dwell on the heights. His place of defense will be the fortress of rocks. His bread will be given to him and his water will be sure. So it's these people, these morally righteous good people who will dwell with God. But there's something interesting here in what, what Isaiah doesn't say. He doesn't say, hey, Judah, now that you're saved, go ahead and try really hard to be this type of people. I need you to really put everything in place in order to just sort of become and work really hard to be this righteous people, and then maybe you'll get to live with God. He he just kind of assumes that it's going to be the case, you know, at some point in their future. If there's any question about this, look at verse 17, right after this, where he says, your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. Your eyes, Judah, you will see the king, and it will be glorious. And this is a huge, monumental statement. And in order to understand how big of a deal it is, we've got we to consider who's writing this. This is Isaiah. This is the very same Isaiah who, in chapter 6, got a vision of the Lord, the king, seated high on a throne, and it about tore him apart. When he saw God lifted up, he said, "'Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips.'" And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah knew better than anyone that when sinful people see a holy God face to face, terrible, awful things happen. They cannot do it. So the fact that he is now telling Judah, this people whose faith has failed, who've turned their backs on God, no, you, you people will see God with your very eyes and it's going to be a wonderful experience for you. That assumes that a radical inner transformation has taken place in their being. What Isaiah is trying to get the people of Judah to see, what God's trying to get us to see, is that he doesn't just want to rescue us from difficult circumstances. God wants to make us into a fundamentally different type of people from the inside out. 
People who are actually capable of obeying him and having faith in him. People who can have that faith in any sort of a difficult circumstance. And in fact, he promises to make his people that sort of a people. But God still isn't done. He's just getting started describing the blessings that he will give his people. Just walk with me through the rest of this chapter. Just through Isaiah describing the land that God prepares for his people. Verse 17. Your eyes will behold the king and his beauty. They will see a land that stretches afar. Your heart will muse on the terror. Where is he who counted? Where is he who weighed the tribute? Where is he who counted the towers? You will see no more the insolent people, the people of an obscure speech that you cannot comprehend, stammering in a tongue that you cannot understand. The Assyrians and everyone who threatens you will be gone. I will take them away. You're actually going to look back on this day and laugh. Man, remember how terrible and scary that was. So amazing that God saved us. Verse 20, Behold Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent, whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. This place of peace is going to be permanent. No future army is going to pluck it up. This is a final, stable place for you to have peace. 21, But there the Lord in majesty will be for us a place of broad rivers and streams where no galley with oars can go, nor majestic ship can pass. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. He will save us. This land is going to be characterized by a close relationship with God. Just as Judah had severed themselves from their relationship with God, he's going to reestablish that relationship. They will be his people. They will dwell with him. He will order their land rightly. Verse 23, your cords hang loose. They cannot hold the mast firm in its place or keep the sail spread out. Then prey and spoil and abundance will be divided. Even the lame will take the prey. The picture here is of God's people as a ship at rest. They can't even put the sail up. They're not out striving to get what they need. They're just in the harbor, docked, enjoying the feast of God's blessing. Remember those mighty men who are weeping in the streets because they couldn't do anything? In this land, the lame are just going to reach out and take whatever they need. This is a promise of God's abundant provision for his people. And he saves what is perhaps the best promise for last. Verse 24. And no inhabitant will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. Or more literally, their iniquity will be carried away from them. And are you tired of sickness? Are you tired of death? Are you tired of your own broken body? More importantly, are you sick and tired of blowing it? Are you sick of having your faith fail, of not being able to obey God the way that you want to or the way that you need to? Are you sick and tired of everyone around you blowing it, all the pain and the hurt that it causes? God is saying, take hope. I see all that and I'm going to change it. I'm preparing a land where that is no more. This is my promise to you. And I hope all these promises of God's blessing, just what he's laid out here, I hope these are ringing some bells for you. Because by no means are these promises stuck in Isaiah 33. This is the constant drumbeat of Scripture. God just over and over and over again, beating it into the heads of his people, that I am your God, you're going to be my people, I will save you, I will make you new, I'm going to provide for every one of your needs, both now and into eternity. It's what he says to his people over and over again. We need to know these things. 
But the question is, why? Why is this such a big deal? Why do we need to know the promises of God and and get them into us? The, The big idea is this. In order to live faithfully as God's people, we must know what God has saved us to, not only what he has saved us from. We must know what God has saved us to, not only what he has saved us from. Listen, put yourself back in the, in the shoes of the people of Judah. What would happen if God had just saved them and then left it at that? No promise of abundant future blessing. What happens the next time a foreign invader comes calling? The people aren't going to be filled with confidence and hope. They're going to be filled with fear and questions. They'll say, well, sure, God saved us last time, but what about this time? Maybe it's just a one-time deal. Maybe we've screwed it up so badly this time that he is now done with us. Man, can we trust God in this situation? Or do we need to go back to Egypt? Do we need to take the money from God's temple again and try to buy our way out of it? But God doesn't do that. He gives them a promise of an abundant future blessing. Something that goes far beyond their immediate circumstances. Something they can hold on to no matter who invades. I not have to be scared because I know that God has promised me a land of future blessing, eternal peace, constant provision. I can trust him. But come back to your own seat for a second. How often when you face difficult circumstances, when life presses in, you just start asking the same questions, having the same doubts. Man, is God going to be good to me in this? Is he going to provide? Can I do what he says and trust that good results will happen? Or do I need to take matters into my own hands? It's in those moments that we are most likely to disobey God. Can I submit to you that the reason that your faith fails, the reason that my faith fails more than it should, is that we don't fully understand and appreciate and live out of the promises that God makes to us through Jesus Christ. It's only when we start grasping the reality of God's eternal promises for us, everything that he promises to be for us infallibly, it's only when we start understanding that that we can live as his faithful people in any difficult circumstance. To to try to help us get a little bit of a grasp for for how this works, how a faith in God's promises actually pushes forward into real obedience and trust, Uh, I want to read a quote from John Piper from his book, Future Grace. It's kind of long, bear with me, but I think it'll be helpful. Here's what Piper says. The faith that grows in the ground of God's promises takes away fear and fills us instead with hope and confidence. And when fear goes and hope in God overflows, we live differently. Our lives show that our treasure in God is more precious than the fleeting attractions of sin. When we rely on God who raises the dead and revel in the hope of the glory of God, we don't yield to the sinful pleasures of the moment. We are not suckered in by advertising that says the one with the most toys wins. We don't devote our best energies to laying up treasures on earth. We don't dream our most exciting dreams about accomplishments and relationships that perish. We don't fret over what this life fails to give us, marriage, wealth, health, fame. Instead, we savor the wonder that the owner and ruler of the universe loves us and has destined us for the enjoyment of his glory and is working infallibly to bring us to his eternal kingdom. And so we live to meet the needs of others because God is living to meet our needs. We love our enemies and do good and bless those who curse us and pray for those who despise us because we are not enslaved to the fleeting, petty pleasures that come from returning evil for evil, and we know that our reward is great in heaven. 
It sounds great, doesn't it? I mean, this is the life that we want to lead. We want to be obedient to God. We want to live in the fullness of his promises. I believe that's true about us as Christians. We want that. The problem is, how do we get it? What Piper is arguing is that we're never going to live this way until we start having a deep understanding from Scripture that God loves us, that he's for us, that he's preparing an eternal future of glory for us, and even now, he's providing for every one of our needs. If this is true, if this is key for us to living a life of true faith, then then we need to know, how do we respond to this? What must we do? How do we get this stuff into us so it actually makes a difference? And, And I think there's three things that we must do in response to this. First, we must know the promises of God. Second, we must act as if they are true. And third, we must worship Jesus. So first... We must know the promises of of God. I mean, it's simple truth, right? If you don't know what God promises, those promises can't really affect you, amen? Listen, you may have won the lottery last night, but if you don't know it this morning, you're still going to be ordering off the dollar menu at McDonald's later on today. I have a bunch of small kids, so we we would be ordering off the dollar menu at McDonald's no matter what, but it's a question of quantity, not if you're going to go someplace else. But I digress. The the real point is that we need to read and know our Bibles so that we know the promises that God gives to us. Listen, if Bible reading has been sort of a drudgery or something you get stuck on in the past, I think putting on this lens of reading it to understand God's promises can get you unstuck, give you some motivation. I know this happened to me a few years back. It was right around the time I was turning 30 and talking to some other people who have gone through this. I'm kind of of the belief now that around 30 is the time that you realize that All the good things in your life are not because of how smart you are or how hardworking you are or how great you are, that really you're just sort of an idiot doing the best you can, and God's been really gracious. And so I was kind of waking up to that reality, and it was freaking me out. I mean, because it meant that I was no longer in control. And so I started having this this really deep fear that I was going to screw things up, that I wasn't going to be able to provide for my family, and that my wife and my three, now four kids would like actually be living in a box on the street. And it was kind of weird, it was really irrational, but it was very real, it was palpable to me. And the only thing that got me through that year was Matthew 6, where Jesus says, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. This is a mind-blowing promise. God knows what I need. He sees it and he wants to give it to me. All I got to do is trust in him and seek first his kingdom. Man, this was sweet. Every time that I wanted to to do something foolish, to reach out for pleasure, to reach out for comfort, to reach out for my own security, this is the verse that brought me back. And I just lashed onto it like a dog on a bone. I, I probably repeated this to myself like 500 times over the course of a year. It was the first time in my life that I was memorizing and meditating on Scripture, not because it was the right thing to do or because it was a good Christian discipline. I was doing it because it was the only way that I could survive. My bet is that there are areas of your life where you need to know what God promises you. What has He promised you in those areas? Do you know that? Can you meditate on it? Do you have it memorized? We need to know the promises of God if we're going to live faithfully to Him. Second, we must act as if those promises are true. 
Remember God's promise to Judah to save them from the Assyrians. He gave them two things they needed to do. Don't go down to Egypt and rest and be still and trust that I am God. The interesting thing is that many of God's promises in scriptures come with similar things that we are to do to actively put our faith in God. Not as a way of meriting his favor or earning his grace, but simply as a means of placing our real actual trust in him. So I mentioned just a minute ago that I have four kids. They're all under the age of six. And so a really hard thing to come by in our house is peace, (laughs) at least circumstantial peace. And it's especially difficult for my wife, right? Because she's trying to run the household, trying to feed everybody, take care of everybody, try to just get on with the normal business of living life. And it can be a cause for great anxiety. And so a really important verse in our household lately has been Philippians 4.6, where Paul says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That is also a monumental promise. The peace of God, the very peace of God, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Not might, not maybe, it will. But with that, there's still stuff for us to do. We can't ignore the first sentence. Sarah and I need to walk into those situations not being anxious, not worrying about how everything's going to get done. Instead, we need to pray and ask God to provide what we need. And we need to do it with a measure of thanksgiving, to thank him for all the blessings that are around us, all these crying, screaming, pooping, mess-making blessings that we are surrounded by all the time. It's when we do that 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 this promise really shines through. This is the rhythm of trust and obey, trust and obey. Do what God says and expect him to do good. Not because you've earned it, not, not because you've somehow merited, just because he's so gracious. But in order to do that, you need to place your faith in him. You need, we need, to act as if God's promises are true. And finally, most importantly, we need to worship Jesus Christ. Because here's the truth. The only reason why we can bank on any of God's promises being true is if we are united to faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Remember the last promise in Isaiah 33? where he says the people will have their iniquity carried away. The only place that has ever happened is on the cross of Jesus Christ when he was crushed for our iniquities. Our sin was placed upon him. He removed the debt that we owed to God. He removed our sin. He removed us from the wrath of God. If we are not united to that in faith, then our fate is that of the Assyrians who were burned to lime. Jesus has taken our sin. But not only that, he is raised from the dead, and because of that, he has now invited us into God's family. He has made us definitively sons and daughters of the Almighty God. And because of that, we now get to inherit every one of God's promises. And here's what Romans 8.32 has to say about all this. It says, God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And it's just saying this. If God has done the hard work of sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die for broken down sinners whose faith has failed, just like us, the rest of it is cake. He's already done the hard work of killing his own son for our sin, raising him from the dead. And if that is true, if that has actually happened, then why would he not give us anything else? That is the easy work. If he's going to give his only son, God himself, to die for us, how would he just not provide for our needs? 
How would he not take care of us? How would he not follow through in providing us a place of eternal blessing? Man, this is why we need to worship and celebrate Jesus. It's why we do it all the time. Because we need to appreciate and understand what happened on the cross. And it needs to give us great faith and hope and trust that God is actually for us now. Man, when we have hope and faith, when we worship Jesus for what he has done, and when we allow that to give us confidence that God will bless us, we have a firm foundation. We have a faith that will be unshakable in any circumstance. This is what we need. This is what we're striving after. And it's all based on the grace of God to us in Jesus Christ and all the promises that God makes to us in Scripture. Let me pray for us. I want to ask God to make these things real to us, to actually give us this sort of a faith. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, uh, we are a people whose faith has failed. We fail all the time in many ways where we just fail to trust you, your simple promises, your simple commands. And Lord, that, that frustrates us, that saddens us. We, we want to be your faithful people. And so, Lord, we thank you so much for Isaiah 33, how you show how you save a people. You save a people who are broken, who have nothing to commend themselves to you. You show us how you don't stop there and you give us this promise of abundant future blessing and that you've promised that to us as well in Jesus Christ. So Lord, I I pray for us. I I pray that we would be a people who just chase after your promises with reckless abandon, that we would know and understand all the things you've promised to be for us in Jesus. I pray that we would worship Jesus. I pray that we would celebrate his death and resurrection and everything that it's bought us. And Father, I pray that we would have the faith to act as if those promises are true, that we would actively engage our faith and trust that you are going to be good to us. Lord, we celebrate the fact that this is your work and and not ours, that we get to follow you into the blessings that you've provided for us. Um, Would you encourage us? Would you strengthen us? Would you give us a faith that can stand up in any circumstance, good or bad? We love you. We praise you so much, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.